0: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
1: This pendulum stuff is nutso. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm turning into checker here, Amber. I know. What does
3: Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now please join me welcoming my special guest for this week, Paolo de Maria, Ohio's State Superintendent of Public Instruction. Paulo, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. Yeah, also joining us from Fordham, Brandon Wright. Hello. All right. Well, Paulo, we are so excited to have you on and honored. You know, we now have had just a handful of state superintendents, but we're especially excited given that Ohio is Fordham's home state, uh, Dayton, our hometown. So it's great to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for for calling in from Columbus. Pleasure to be doing it. Yeah. And, you know, Paulo and I have uh, several things in common, including that we both like to ride our bikes uh, to work when it's not so cold. So we're both... About right. to dust off Hopefully the bike. this week this will work. be the first time. <laughs> yes, exactly. No more excuses. It's getting warm. There we go. That's right. Well, good. Well, we've got lots to talk about on the Ohio education front and how it uh, intersects with other national reform happenings. Let's do that on our Ed Reform Update. All right, Paolo, well, lots going on. You've got new NAEP scores, as does everybody, of course. Uh, you have uh, been working through your ESSA plans, and now you are working on a strategic plan for the Ohio Department of Education. Tell me about that piece. What's uh, what's your plan for improving Ohio's education system?
0: Yeah, and I think it actually came out of two things that happened. One was when I, when I was hired a superintendent just about two years ago. I felt like Ohio had this need to really become more strategic about its thinking in terms of its policies and practices, how it supports districts and how it defines, you know, what it's trying to do to sort of rally everybody around the same thing. And then I then I think that was further reinforced during the ESSA plan development process because, you know, ESSA deals with a certain sort of narrow strand of things and it and it felt very unsatisfying to say, well, okay, we're doing these things over here, but we really want to address some other things as well. And so how can how can we do that? And the strategic plan gave us an opportunity to go down that uh, down that direction. So uh, to to folks who uh, who go to our website and uh, uh, download the current draft, you'll you'll see a number of interesting things. Start, you know starting with the title, uh, which tries to capture uh, you know the idea of what we're trying to do. It's called "Each Child Our Future," uh, and it's really about focusing on each and every child and what those particular what each child needs and how do we as a system organize ourselves to make sure we're addressing the needs of each child. And The idea of our future is the fact that you know these kids are our future. But it's the, our part emphasizes that this is partnership. We really need to bring all the various resources to the, to the table, whether it's, you know, social service organizations, healthcare organizations, uh, the philanthropic community, the faith-based community, all these folks, uh, that, that have a vested interest in students as well, maybe looking at it through their own lens and, um, um, bringing them to the table, uh, and, and reinforcing their commitment to helping every student succeed.
3: So that's good paulo but you know we are the education gadfly here and i can kind of picture checker reading this uh, some of this stuff and rolling his eyes uh, or kind of wanting to put on a whitney houston song in the background about children are our future i mean of course they are you know we, sure as as dads and we you know of course we are, yes 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 but uh but show me the meat uh, t- tell us about some of the major themes i mean here because, well, so, look, Paolo, so one oh, of the
0: key one of the key things is that we recognize that students are facing increasing you know um increasing challenging circumstances as they grow up. I mean, you you know the data as well as I do about uh, adverse childhood experiences, the kind of trauma that students are facing, uh, the various stressors on their life. And so one of the things we've done is make it clear that in terms of the learning domains that we that we look to the education system to be involved in, we're expanding those beyond simply the academic, right? So we always think of schools as being, you know, about English and math and social studies and science. And we've got, you know, two domains that capture those foundational skills as well as well-rounded, you know, sort of academic, uh, content. But we also, um, lay over on those, uh, two learning domains. One is about reasoning and sort of leadership skills. These are the things that we think of as the 21st century skills. Everybody is always saying, well, the business community says they need students who are good at problem solving, design thinking, creativity, you know, data analysis. So we've got those in a, in a, in a domain and then the social emotional skills students having a growth mindset, students being able to persevere, having self-awareness, being able to work together in groups. And so I think a lot of people, as we've taken this around the state for stakeholder feedback, feel like calling those out and being deliberate about it. We're not saying that those things haven't been nurtured in students in the past, but being deliberate about it and, and knowing that w- we can develop a common language and some common ideas about how do we help students gain those skills, because those are going to be uh, equally as important to their success uh, as they go forward, whether it's in college or in a career path, or whether they want to be an entrepreneur, or even if they're just going to you know end up being a part of a family unit.
3: Yeah, no, and, and look, of, of course, I mean, I, I get that. And I think it is important to talk about well-rounded kids, and, and we certainly all went overboard in the No Child Left Behind years and being so narrowly focused on reading and math skills. So that, you know, I don't have a problem with that, but I guess what I would want to see or want to know, Paolo, is in a more concrete way, you know, is Ohio committing to improving its outcomes? I mean, you look at some plans from other states, uh, You know, not just ESSA plans, but strategic plans or or what you see in their websites, and many of them are very concrete. You know, they say, look, we are not satisfied with our outcomes in terms of student achievement. We are going to narrow achievement gaps. We're going to, you know, we want to be in the top 10 or the top five of the country on NAEP. Uh, or they also talk about completion. They say, look, we got to get more kids to and through four-year degrees, two-year degrees, one-year technical credentials. You know, we want to have whatever, 60%, 70% by a certain date, having valuable post-secondary credentials. I don't see that kind of language in here with Ohio. And this is a state, which is now one of the only states where the achievement gap on NAEP is widening, You know, where there's basically been no progress in 10 years like a lot of other states. I, look, I mean, I just, I just worry that we're sleepwalking. And so where's the sense of urgency that says, hey, okay, all these skills, all the knowledge, all these attributes, yes, but it's to an end, which is to help kids actually be successful In today's economy and and to be well prepared citizens. I mean, can we actually? That's
0: where, you know, so that's where our goal statement uh, comes from. You know, it was very tempting to go back and pick out goal statements that represented either NAEP scores or ACT scores or, or, or all the traditional academic indicators that we've used in the past. But what we want to do is basically say, okay, do our students actually go on to be successful? in what they do after high school. So we've, we've identified three things, which is essentially uh, being enrolled and succeeding in a post high school learning experience, which would include adult career tech. It would include a, you know, two year or four year college, an apprenticeship program, uh, and what have you. Serving in a military branch uh, is the second key thing. And then the third one is earning a living wage. Uh, and, and, uh, we, you know, by, by stating it that way, I think it, it, it puts this system more in tune with what are those competencies, you know, and knowledge and skills because so many times, and, and you've seen them as much as I have, Mike, that you have students that do well academically, but then they, fu- then they go off to college and they can't succeed because they can't function in that college setting. Uh, and you also see those times when students, you know, are able to succeed in college, even though they haven't, uh, you know reach let's just take a you know remediation free score on the act because in that college setting they know how to manage their time they know how to be uh good students they've got they're in a college setting that is is uh um uh, uh providing them the supports they need and they can be successful in that setting as well or they're in an apprenticeship program or something else that that has a uh uh, uh you know a hands-on element that speaks to their particular passion their aspirations and they're going to be successful so part of part of our 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 point of view is to Tip things away from constantly focusing on these standardized assessments as the measure of success, and really looking at success in terms of what students are doing in the real world.
3: But you still want your NAEP scores to go up, right, Paolo? <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's well, make it both things. I, I insane, think that's right?
0: I think that's a debate happening that's going to happen increasingly among state superintendents about you know, I mean, we we see places where we hold them up as having done some great things, and their NAEP scores are going down. And I think there are people out there wondering whether the, 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 the persisting focus on nape, nape, nape uh, is really the, the thing that's uh, right by our kids.
2: For, for, uh, for these possible pathways, um, a big question I think people often have or, or, or concern, right, is related to things like tracking. And obviously that's not what you're intending here. Um, right. But when and how are sort of these pathways determined for individual students?
0: Well, again, I I don't think it's a matter of when and how as much as, because I would argue to be successful in every one of these pathways, you know, you want to help a student reach challenging and rigorous uh, acquisition of knowledge and skills. So we're not shying away from the fact that, you know, we want every student to be good at math, good at English, how they get to be good at math, how they get to be good at English and the type of English and the type of math and how they're asked to demonstrate whether they have mastered English and math. That's where I think we're going to be very creative. And you see that come through in, in our strategies. I mean, I was just just yesterday at a major celebration of 300 of the best uh, high school art students. And if you really understand how like, the AP art exam is administered, it's all about student demonstration of learning and because it can't be done as a standardized test. How do we bring those kind of ideas to assessing a student's mastery of the English language, their mastery of mathematical concepts, so, Because I think we're seeing over and over again that simply sitting them down at a computer once a year and putting them through a test uh, is, isn't really uh, the best way to have students demonstrate what they know, what they're capable of, and what they're able to do.
2: So then how, how do you essentially hold all of your schools accountable for, for trying to, to essentially right, furthering these four domains, right? Obviously, for right. the that's, academic that's, stuff, you test, but what <laughs> you about the, for nail the, on the SEL head. and
0: it becomes a you know it that becomes the challenge is that are there ways uh, and it's true both in in all four of the domains right what does what does assessment look like that allows students a greater opportunity to demonstrate what they know and are able to do in a way that's still uh you know fair and equitable and serves an accountability purpose uh but may have different variations on a theme than what we may be uh, currently used to and and then you know to the extent where you get into some of the social emotional factors you know, how do you want to gauge the progress you make? I, I think it's harder to imagine actually um, uh, a, you know, a formalized assessment structure. But I think there are ways because I think there are ways today that people are able to ascertain, well, you know, here's a student. How would you rate their ability to work in groups? And, you know, have, have they mastered that skill set in a way that is, is, uh, cr- creates um, the opportunity for them to succeed in demonstrating it once they leave high school?
3: All right. Hey, Paolo, thank you so much for your time here today. A lot to chew on. People should check out this plan. You know, it, it's always fascinating to me to see the, the ideas floating around nationally, how they end up informing these state plans and then vice versa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah,
0: there's so much great stuff happening on the national level, whether it's on the social emotional side, lots of great things happening on performance based assessment models, lots of things happening on, you know, alternative accountability structures. Uh, And, you know, and focusing on connections to to careers and the kind of skills that our employer community is saying that they want to see students have. And we're doing a lot of those things in Ohio and and are hoping to, you know, further amp up that that uh, those
3: great activities. All right. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Hope you'll be back. Paulo De Maria, the state superintendent of public instruction in the great state of Ohio. Come back soon. Keep up the great work you guys are doing. Take care. All right. Thanks. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thank you, Mike. So you know that that interview we just did with Paulo from Ohio. I got to say, to hear him say that he's not necessarily committed to boosting Ohio's NAEP scores, boy, this Why? is a different that. era that we are in. I can imagine. Huh. yeah. Well, what,
1: what does he care more about? I'm.
3: Well, curious. you know, a, a broader look at uh, you know non-cognitive and stuff.
1: I'm guessing. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Come on, people, both and. We can walk That's and chew right. gum. We can.
3: Uh, we're gonna okay. have all well, I hope these... he's
1: not listening to this part. I mean, he was kind enough to come on the show yeah, yeah, and now. I'm sure he is.
3: Hello, Paulo. <laughs> it's okay. He's a public official. He can take it. Oh my goodness. You know, I, we're going to have all these people out there, these kids who are, are just have great grit. They can't read do yes, math. Right.
1: Uh, but they persevere. I hope not. Right. Can we not swing that far? This pendulum stuff is nutso.
3: <laughs> I'm turning to checker here, Amber.
1: I know, right. I'm seeing it. All right, what you got for us? We got a new study that examines outcomes for first-generation college students. It's going to get, make you even more grumpier, uh, meaning those whose parents did not attend college at all. This was an IES report that looked at their entrance into post-secondary education, persistence, completion, and labor market outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, their progress is compared to two other groups. First, those students with at least one parent who earned a bachelor's degree, and then a second group whose uh, parents had attended college, but neither one earned a degree. Okay. Okay. Uh, data are drawn from three sources. Not that, well, not that people care a lot about this, but it was cool because they were drawing like these mm-hmm. longitudinal data sets from these huge sa- samples. So uh, educational longitudinal study of 2002 tracks about 15,000 high school sophomores for over 10 years. Beginning post-secondary students longitudinal study surveys about 17,000 beginning secondary students about their persistence and attainment. And then you got this baccalaureate and beyond longitudinal study about 17,000 students, again, who completed a BS degree. So you've got like this, a really treasure trove of longitudinal data, okay? Key findings compared with high school graduates whose parents had a bachelor's degree, many fewer students whose parents did not enroll in college. I could have given you lots of numbers, but I chose not to, yep. um, took such high-level courses as trigonometry, statistics, pre-calculus, calculus, or earned AP and IB credits. So in other words, you're already beginning to see differences between these kids who are going to be Mm -hmm. these first-generation kids in terms of what they're taking in high school. Okay? Okay? They're taking less rigorous stuff. Uh, Among high school sophomores in 2002, 72% of students whose parents had never attended college had enrolled in post-secondary education by 2012. That figure was 84% for peers whose parents had some college, and then it keeps going up. And 93% for uh, those whose parents had earned a bachelor's degree. So you begin to see more and more folks enrolling in college based on what their parents did. Moreover, nearly half of students whose parents did not attend college first enrolled, what are you going to think? In a community two-year community right. college, mm-hmm. compared with 26% of students whose parents had earned a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree. Next, we move on to college dropout data, specifically three years after first enrolling in college. More first-generation students who began college in 0304 had left without earning a credential, mm-hmm. 33% to be exact. Mm-hmm. Compare that to their peers whose parents attended college. of them had dropped out Mm -hmm. and compare that to those students whose parents had earned a degree. We're going down, down, down just 14% of those kids had dropped out. Um, I did not find this in the report, but a a reporter covered this and I was scouring it. But anyway, her takeaway based on some maybe interview with the, with the authors was that 36% of undergrads who began college in 0304 were these First gen kids, mm-hmm. and ultimately four years later, twenty percent of them had graduated. Okay, I didn't see that. Twenty percent of
2: the thirty three, or of the thirty
1: six percent of undergraduates, mm-hmm. and it was a little hairy whether it was the same exact sample. But anyway, I put it in there, and I thought I didn't see that. But you know, lots of times they interview the authors mm-hmm. because they they miss this big point, which is this one, which is how many kids. Ultimately, we're right. first generation. Right. How many graduated? Yeah. Like they had this weird pers- three-year persistence thing that nobody really cares about. We yeah. just want to know how many made it out. But,
3: but you're still. But you're saying that eighty percent of the first-generation college students failed to graduate
2: from a four-year a- college.
1: According to this That's my question. reporter. Okay. But I looked in the report. I did not find that anywhere. Okay. So and I'm like, is it possible them? she
2: meant that like twenty percent? By percentage point mm-hmm. of the thirty-three yeah. graduated, so I, I like wish, in other yeah, words,
1: I wish I knew. Like sixty-six percent. La- I spent an hour today trying to figure out whether this was true or not, yeah. <laughs> and whether I was going to include it in my minute All or right. not. Fair enough. Anyway, we, we keep looking. Keep yes. looking. Last last set of findings here among oh seven oh eight bachelor's degree holders, there were no differences in the likelihood that they would be employed full time four years later. So in other words, about 59% of all three groups, meaning those whose parents had not attended college, Mm -hmm. those whose parents had attended college, and those who had earned a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. were all employed full-time at similar percentages. Um, Moreover, among these degree holders employed four years later, their median annual salaries were not statistically different Mm. uh, between all of these different groups. Um, So obviously one point they make is these are early career salaries. We have no idea whether these salary trajectories diverge later in life between these first-gen students and their peers who come from more advantaged backgrounds.
3: Yeah, but this is huge. I mean, it does mean that you, if you can complete you can college, make you make it into the middle right. class and you have closed the gap with more advantaged kids, at least in terms of income. That's That's huge. right.
1: Yeah. One little last point, and it keeps going in terms of those who deg- um, enrolled in graduate degree mm-hmm. programs, all those different groups. No differences among those who get the um, bachelor's degree and mm-hmm. so on. So, yeah, it's exactly the point. Like, if you can just make it through, mm-hmm. it really does seem like you've really yeah. made it uh, in terms of closing some of that gap with, yeah. your, with your peers. Hey, Amber,
3: I want to go back to this point about course-taking in high school yeah. because uh, we just this week also got a big new data release from the Department of Education, the Office for Civil Rights. Mm-hmm. They had an analysis on stem course taking uh not surprisingly shows big disparities by race mm-hmm. uh but what i i'm curious about for this one is were they able to look at the achievement levels of kids i mean did mm-hmm. these kids take a test yeah no no um, in these samples i thought some of these samples had assessments attached to them
1: yeah i mean this one in particular they just looked okay. at course taking okay you know i, like guess transcript what I'm, I data. i
3: mean I, I i'm curious how much of it is that you know fewer of the the First gen kids mm-hmm. were ready for those higher level courses, right. uh, versus they were ready and they didn't get access to it. I mean, we know from the College Board data that there's certainly plenty of uh, low income kids out there who do very well on the PSAT and then never take an AP class. Right. Sometimes because they don't have AP classes, classes. in their, That's right. their high school, or not very many, and so they're trying to close that gap. But yeah, I, you know, so in other words, how much of this is is truly in sort of access? Gap mm-hmm. uh, and how much of it is a preparation gap? Well, and I feel like the press, I'm sorry, journalists, you guys kind of sweep this all together, you yeah, know. Right. And, and I mean, sure, we can make sure every high school in the country has, you know, offers calculus, but. You know, if there's no kids ready Ready to succeed in calculus, then that's just kind But ironically,
1: I mean, remember our latest gifted education report, we found that both low and high poverty schools were more just as likely to offer gifted programs, which was kind of surprising because we thought we weren't going to see that. Um, But I think that's right. It's the exact distinction that we need to be making relative to. Yeah, access and readiness. I mean, we, we've been talking about this for years, right? When we yeah. put kids in courses where they're not prepared, and are you watering yeah. down the quality, and so on and so forth, and
2: and actually yeah. along those same lines, we have an intern uh, that's reviewing um, a report or a study by the Education Trust uh, in today's Gadfly that actually looks at sort of how challenging courses are in high versus low poverty schools, and they find that there's actually a huge gap um, that mm. uh, that that high poverty schools tend to have significantly less challenging courses um so even even if you sort of uh, parity access then there's also i think another question um is the class you're trying to get in both schools is it equally challenging in both schools also mm-hmm.
1: and they're um, looking at assignments there brandon mm-hmm. like classroom assignments yes yes yeah. like
2: classroom assignments over a two-week period i think
1: mm-hmm yeah no, I mean, I, I think it's all, these are all legitimate questions and there's some limitations to what these l- l- large data sets can tell us. Um mm-hmm. But still, like these are important trends, right? I mean, yeah. I think in, in in many ways, and I was looking, Raj Chetty's got another huge study out that I didn't look into mm-hmm. that that closely. But he's finding actually some opposite things that some of these, because after you follow them for a longer amount of time, yeah. that the salary things that I mentioned here, those mm-hmm. trajectories begin to diverge, diverge. more. And,
3: yeah. and then wealth, of course, diverges because... Right. Uh, inheritance and other things but but look still the argument for college is to me still very compelling Mm -hmm. if you complete and the challenge is we're just still not where we need to be in terms of completion especially for low-income kids and so you say would you be better off uh you know either just not completing a four-year degree or completing a two-year or technical degree and Mm everything that's that's where you know maybe if some of these kids would be doing better uh, right. If they completed a credential of one sort or another versus just leaving college Perfect. with none. Because we're
1: finding that most of these kids are leaving in the first year. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, some of it's finances, right? That's yeah. another thing that kind of gets brushed under the table sometimes. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's just lack of preparedness. Prepared. But yeah. but yeah, if they're leaving in the first year, could could we get them through two years, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're or not... even
3: a one-year technical credential in some right. fields are really valuable. Yeah. But... Again, the better ones, you have to have strong reading and math and writing That's skills. Right. I mean, it doesn't make our K-12 job any easier. That's right. Uh, but it may mean that we need to do things differently, especially, look, in, in you know 11th and 12th grades multiple pathways, Mike. So many. Yeah. Sing it. Sing it, Amber. <laughs> all right. Hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing
1: off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.